1: The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.
2: Now, from our nation's capital... This is Bloomberg Sound On. We want the world to know that President Putin is trying to gaslight NATO.
3: Russia has more forces on the border of Ukraine than the entire
4: United States military has in Europe.
2: Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names.
5: The amount of job openings is at an historic high. The unemployment rate back down under 4%. We
4: have a great opportunity on a bipartisan budget. We're about 95% of the way there. Bloomberg
2: Sound On It's Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
1: The headline we did not expect today, Putin backs diplomacy. But is it for real? Or is Putin still pulling strings to manipulate this whole situation? Just a day before he meets with Germany's new chancellor, we'll have the latest on the standoff and tell you why the U.S. still believes an attack could be imminent. And an important conversation ahead with former Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs. That would be retired Army Brigadier General Mark Kimmett. There are new polling numbers on the Russia-Ukraine standoff from both sides of the Atlantic. We'll cover them with Jason McMahon, the head of geopolitical risk analysis at Morning Consult, and later Bloomberg's Kriti Gupta on the threat of high oil and gas prices to the economic recovery. We've got the signature panel in place, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. So strap in. Rarely have two words gone so far to soothe so many. All right. Said Vladimir Putin to his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, when presented with this idea that Moscow continued diplomatic talks with the U.S. and its allies. More of what we've already been doing. It did not hurt to hear from Russia's defense minister as well that some military exercises had wrapped up. They've ended now. Others will soon end. Senator Mark Warner, the Democrat from Virginia who chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee, appeared on Balance of Power today on Bloomberg. Still sounded pretty concerned when he talked to David Weston. Warner says his biggest worry right now is a possible cyber attack from Russia against Ukraine that is difficult to contain, he says, could also hit some of our allies in Eastern Europe. Here's Warner. You can't limit the cyber attack on geographic boundaries. And if some of those
6: cyber repercussions hit in Eastern Poland, for example, a NATO nation, all of these hypotheticals about what constitutes an Article 5 violation about Mm. If you attack one country in NATO, all of NATO has to come to your assistance. That hypotheticals around uh, uh, cyber attacks right. could play out
1: in a very real way. Scary hypotheticals. All this as Germany's new chancellor, Olaf Schultz, prepares to meet tomorrow with Vladimir Putin. What could be a very critical moment in this saga, and that is where we begin today with General Mark Kimmett, the retired Army Brigadier General, I should say, former Assistant Secretary of State, for Political Military Affairs. General, we last talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and you had pretty strong feelings about what Vladimir Putin was up to. How do you read his remarks today? Is he actually heading for de-escalation?
4: Well, I I think he is. I certainly hope he is. Now, that may be confirmation on my bias on my part. You and I talked a month ago exactly on this, and uh, we were concerned then about the buildup, uh, the problem that we have is we really don't know how he can step down from this. And I think it may well be that he's looking for an opportunity to step down and back off. But uh, it's pretty volatile at that this point. No, no, no doubt about it.
1: Sounds pretty unpredictable. Uh, what do you make of what Senator Warner is talking about with a possible cyber attack that that could be a prelude to war? But, you know, we talk so much about tanks, airplanes, guns and missiles, General. If a cyber attack hit one of our NATO allies, what does that mean about Article 5? What would we be obligated to do?
4: Well, first of all, it would have to be considered an act of war. Uh, yeah. We've seen cyber attacks happen uh, a number of times inside of Europe, uh, inside of our NATO partners. We never considered them an act of war. I think mm-hmm. it was a collateral effect uh, as a result of what he was doing inside of Ukraine. I think it would be hard for NATO to make the point that that's an Article V operation.
1: I want to ask you about the window of opportunity here for Vladimir Putin. More than 100,000 troops, as we know, a lot of equipment on the Ukrainian border. Uh, the former Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, was asked about it today, again, on, on Bloomberg, on Balance of Power. Let's hear his answer on this and have you respond. Here's Leon
3: Panetta. When you put uh, troops on the front lines and when they're armed for battle, And when they're prepared for battle, uh, frankly, they can only maintain that for a certain period of time. They can't just constantly be at a state of of battle readiness. And that is probably the gamble that Putin's taken now, which is how long can he keep those forces online and be ready for a possible attack? You
1: know a lot about this, General. How long can Putin stay ready for battle at the border? It's already been weeks.
4: Twelve. it can stay much longer than we think. Uh, We kept 500,000 American troops on the East German border for 45 years. Uh, (laughs) Now, it's an expensive proposition. There's no doubt about it. Uh, But uh, I would not think that Vladimir Putin would back down because his soldiers have been on the border too long.
1: Would you also suggest that battle ready is somewhat different for the Russian military than if you were there with American units?
4: Well, not particularly. I'd take a look at what they've got. They've got conventional ground troops. Uh, they're going to need a lot of ammo. They're going to need a lot of fuel. They're going to need a lot of food, a lot of fuel. Mm. That certainly could be provided and ready uh, and can be waiting for the go signal from Vladimir Putin, uh, say, for a couple of more weeks, at least.
1: The fact is, though, General, even if Vladimir Putin pulls the trigger, they, they cross the border, there's a Ukrainian invasion. We're still not talking about an American military answer, correct? This would then trigger sanctions, which have yet to be fully detailed. But but we spend so much time talking military strategy, it's still not really on the table for the U.S., is it?
4: No, not at all. I think that uh, the strategy of the United States is step number one, diplomacy. And if diplomacy fails, then sanctions. Like our commitment uh, to Germany uh, for 45 years, to where we would... Uh, deter, and if deterrence fails, defend. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's deter, and if deterrence fails, uh, then economic sanctions. The military forces that we have in Europe right now, they're solely for the protection of our NATO allies, certainly not Ukraine.
1: So if sanctions are the heaviest hand we have right now, General, how important is this meeting
4: tomorrow with Germany's Chancellor and Vladimir Putin? Well, I think it will probably be as unsuccessful as the British foreign minister was when she Mm -hmm. went to visit Putin. Uh, regardless of what Putin's going to do, uh, that will not be affected by meeting with the new chancellor.
1: Did we lose the general? Are you still with us, General?
4: No, sir. Sorry, it
1: sounded like I lost your line there uh, for a moment. What then does the German chancellor need to tell Vladimir Putin tomorrow?
4: Well, what he needs to tell Vladimir Putin is that he is cutting off the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, He believes... Putin believes right now that he's holding Germany hostage because they're unwilling to cut off the Nord Stream Pipeline project.
1: Many thanks to retired Army Brigadier General Mark Kimmett, former Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs here on Bloomberg Sound On. As we turn now, after we've set the table here to some fresh polling data out today from Morning Consult, there's been a real dearth of data Jason McMahon is head of geopolitical risk analysis, and he's with us now. Jason, welcome. It's, it's safe to say the public does not want to start a new war. Do you find in your survey that people want a diplomatic resolution here?
5: That is correct, at least in the scenario we're currently in where a Russian invasion has not yet taken place. Um, about 75 percent of American voters do prefer negotiations or sanctions relative to something like deployment of U.S. troops.
1: Were there any circumstances under which Americans did support the use of force?
5: For the most part, no. What we're seeing is that if there were to be an actual Russian invasion, uh, across most of the scenarios that we have surveyed on, for the most part, Americans do continue to support uh, sanctions as a response relative to deployment of U.S. troops. There is one exception, uh, and that would be in the event that Russia invaded and occupied all of Ukraine, so not just eastern Ukraine, but really uh, went into the entire country and remained there. Mm -hmm. In that case, we're seeing uh, a bit more support for deployment of U.S. troops, primarily as part of a NATO-led engagement, but the margins are still relatively slim.
1: What the numbers look like there?
5: Yes, what we're seeing as of today, and this would be from a survey that we fielded over the weekend, um, is that among the voters who kind of have an opinion on the issue, Uh, It's really about 51 percent or so who would support uh, military deployment in case of a, again, kind of a total invasion of Ukraine and about 49 percent who Mm. would prefer sanctions. Uh, So very tight margins.
1: You've also polled Europeans on this. And fascinating as we gauge how committed our allies are to the cause here as I read, German and, and U.K. adults oppose greater Russian influence in countries uh, in the neighborhood, as you put it. But French sentiment is less clear cut. What did you learn?
5: Yeah, you know, we're seeing French sentiment in general is a bit less clear cut when it comes to opinions on things like uh, Russian influence in its neighborhood, so to speak. So countries like Ukraine and Georgia, perhaps. We're also seeing a bit more uncertainty when it comes to French sentiment towards things like Uh, sanctions as well as whether or not Germany should move to cancel the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Hmm. We don't have a great sense uh, as of yet as to what the drivers might be, but French sentiment does seem to be a bit of an outlier in this regard Mm -hmm. uh, relative to what we're seeing in the UK uh, and also in Germany as well. How the
1: Germans come down on Nord Stream 2?
5: You know, interestingly, in the case of Nord Stream 2 in Germany, we're seeing uh, exactly an even split. This was as of a few weeks ago. So we're seeing that about uh, one-third of respondents are kind of uncertain. They don't have much of an opinion. Among the remaining two-thirds that do have an opinion, it's sort of split right down the middle, with half of those saying, yes, let's cancel, uh, and half of those saying, no, let's not. So uh, an especially uncertain case, I think, given the magnitude of the issue at stake. Wow.
1: That does, it says a lot as the German chancellor prepares to meet with Vladimir Putin tomorrow. Where does Europe come down on Ukraine joining NATO?
5: You know, in Europe there as well, what I can tell you is relative to the U.S., uh, German, French and British respondents are a bit more split or undecided as to whether NATO should really keep the door open to Ukrainian membership. Uh, What we're seeing in the U.S., by contrast, is that about 80 percent of American voters who do have an opinion on the matter Mm -hmm. uh, would like to keep the door open to Ukrainian membership.
1: And there's the matter of sanctions, uh, Jason. There's a debate underway here in the U.S. Is there a similar debate in Europe over how to handle this?
5: You know, as far as the Europeans are concerned, we're seeing similar to the U.S. that Europeans do prefer sanctions to a military deployment, uh, at least as of a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in terms of kind of the level of sanctions that they would prefer, that is something we have not had the opportunity to investigate yet.
1: Straddling both sides of the Atlantic, in this case, Jason McMahon, head of geopolitical risk analysis at Morning Consult. We thank you for being with us on Bloomberg Radio.
5: Thank you so much.
1: Coming up, we assembled a panel for their take on all this with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanseno and Rick Davis. This is Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg
1: Radio. The headline on the terminal, Putin signals talks with U.S. to go on. Pretty impressive stagecraft this morning in Moscow. As Vladimir Putin staged televised meetings with his foreign and defense ministers sitting at the other ends of a really long table. That, as I read on Bloomberg, emphasized de escalation of tensions and efforts to find a diplomatic solution. Okay, so is this getting better? Let's assemble the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Welcome to both of you. I hope you had a great weekend. Jeannie, are you buying this messaging from Moscow?
8: You know, it, we have to be very circumspect on this. I think the the wise thing to do with, with Vladimir Putin always is to watch what he does as opposed to listen to what he says. And so, yes, they are signaling in terms of their talk that they may be open to more diplomatic initiatives. And yet you look at what they have done on the border. You look at how well positioned they are to go in in any manner if they choose. And I think that's what we have to respond to.
1: I presume this was for a domestic audience, although it resonated around the world. Is this Vladimir Putin uh, telling us how he feels or trying to to at least create the pretense to, to be able to say later, hey, you know, we tried what we could. We we tried diplomacy till the
6: end. Yeah, I mean, it's a very low-risk situation for him, right? As you say, there's probably a lot of domestic consumption of uh, information, uh, probably not taking a lot of survey research right now outside the, his own country, but he knows what people are feeling, and he's got to have the support of the public. So mm-hmm. that little song and dance, as you say, stagecraft, uh, probably was orchestrated for that, but but it was clearly also built for a global consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as, as Jeannie just said, don't listen to him, just see what he does. Uh, But the reality here, too, is, as uh, General uh, Kimmett just said on your show, uh, uh, maybe he is looking for a way to step it down a bit. Um, You know, this is a big risk for him, and and he is at least looking like he's buying himself some options.
1: Do you feel like he's looking for an off-ramp here, Jeannie? Uh, One of the other things we discussed with the general is the amount of time. He's had 130,000 troops at the ready. I mean, at, at, at a certain point, that gets to be a pretty expensive endeavor.
8: It does. You know, I think one of the things we've always suspected or many people have in this area is that Putin had no intention from the beginning of going in. And yet he finds himself in this position in part because of the United States and NATO's response. And so he could very well be looking for a way out. But again, we cannot just assume that we've got to work from the perspective that he's amassed this amount at the border of troops and equipment. So if he chooses to go in, he can do that. And we've we got to respond accordingly, which means the United States and NATO have to really take steps to to make it clear to Putin what he's facing should he go in. And that's where I think there's been some concern. We heard some of it over the weekend that we haven't been strong enough in letting him know exactly what he will yeah. face.
1: We've talked uh, quite a bit about uh, the meeting tomorrow with the German chancellor. Rick, we heard earlier today from Leon Panetta. He was speaking with David Weston on Balance of Power about what President Biden needs to be focused on right now. With that meeting in mind tomorrow, listen to what he said. Here's Leon Panetta.
3: Putin is going to look for a crack. Uh, That's what he's doing right now by moving his forces, by concentrating his forces. He's trying to see whether or not he can crack that unity between the United States and our allies. The most important thing we need to do is to continue our efforts continue to unify our allies
1: with that said what goes into the meeting tomorrow rick what will you be watching as germany has its day at the kremlin
6: well you know we were informed by the meeting that uh, chancellor schultz had with joe biden last week and yep. and where he was pressed very hard by the american press and the german press to make a statement about Nord Stream two. Joe Biden had to uh, basically step in and save him, and but what he what he committed him to do is to stop Nord Stream two if if there's an right. invasion. So the question is does does the chancellor walk out of that meeting have a press opportunity and say the same thing that Joe Biden said he wouldn't do it in the U.S. press? Right. Why would he do it after walking out of uh, uh, Putin's office? And I think that is the key thing that Panetta is looking for is. You know, is he siding with us publicly Mm -hmm. or is he, you know, trying to play diplomacy? Right now, I think public statements mean a lot.
1: That would be a moment. Uh, Bloomberg senior editor and opinion columnist John Authors had an interesting piece today, Jeannie. Headline dangers of a pulp fiction moment in Ukraine. You know, everybody's going to read that headline. He starts by describing the scene at the beginning of that movie. Samuel L. Jackson, John Travolta. They walk into the apartment where the young guys are hanging around uh, looking for whatever was in the briefcase. Samuel L. Jackson questioning one of them when he casually shoots this guy laying on the couch and he asks this.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. You were saying something about best intentions?
1: Speaking of best intentions here, Jeannie, the idea is that we can be distracted by everything going on in Ukraine. We've got issues with inflation, earnings season, the credit market, What are you worried about the Biden administration not looking at here, keeping its eye on the ball while the rest of this stuff is happening?
8: Boy, that brought me back to a great film. Um, it was a great piece by John. And you're right, that title really gets you going. Um, you know, I, I think the, the one thing I think that is really, and we saw this in the interview over the weekend with the president, to me, they have got to focus on is inflation, which is not just a U.S. problem, but a world problem. And yes, this can take our eye off that ball. And if it does, the, the, the implications will be traumatic.
1: Rick and Jeannie are with us with apologies to the Big Kahuna Burger. Pretty Gupta will come in next here on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
2: Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 11.3.0 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business app and BloombergRadio.com.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthews. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? That line from Samuel L. Jackson you just heard from Pulp Fiction, as noted in John Arthur's great column today, got me thinking about the risks facing the Biden administration and the country as a whole while our entire focus is trained on Ukraine. A great piece today on the terminal. Americans spend more at pump posing perils for markets and the Fed. Oh yeah, the Fed. And Critty's with us now. There's a reason, Critty, the administration's so concerned about high prices. You point out it threatens consumer spending, confidence, the overall economy, just as the Fed is beginning to tighten. Griti Gupta, how much of a slowdown are we talking about?
0: We are the United States of America. We are unique because we are a consumer driven economy. At the end of the day, it's that kind of consumerism that essentially powers the global economy. You know, a lot of people like to say it's China making exports. It's uh, Russia with their commodity exports, the Middle East with their commodity exports. But at the end of the day, someone has to buy them, right? And and that's really where the United States comes into handy. But when you start to see that purchasing power eroded a little bit, it becomes a problem, not just for the U.S. economy, but for the world. And if things start to cost more, whether it's food, whether it's gasoline, whether it's housing, um, that purchasing power starts to drop and drop and drop. And that's really where oil prices play a really big role. Because if you kind of crack down on what those inflation numbers really look like and what's actually driving inflation, well, the majority of it is coming from energy prices. I mean, we're looking at, um, well, nearing $100 a barrel. I think we hit $96 a barrel on Brent just earlier in the session. What's important to keep in mind is that it's not just geopolitical risk. It's this kind of really important demand that's driving it. And that kind of trickles into gasoline prices because not only is the United States uh, one of the biggest consumer economies in the world, the biggest, I should say, it's also the biggest consumer of gasoline in particular.
1: And to your point, this goes beyond some of the current geopolitical risk and the current inflation story. When it comes to energy specifically, Critty, this is a long-term story of lack of investment right, and demand that's not about to wane just because a couple of EVs are showing up.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, well, let's just start off with the lack of investment first, because yeah. there are several players who who kind of feed into the commodity space. And so when we're talking about lack of investment, most people are talking about uh, investment abroad, because mm-hmm. you could have two different types of oil. You have kind of heavy crude and, and light crude. And I won't get into the details of that. But basically, uh, the world can't sustain itself on light crude, which is just what the United States makes. That's why you kind of have this uh, interchangeable um, commodity market, because heavy crude can be turned into more things things like jet fuel, gasoline. It can be refined. It can even be made to Vaseline, for example. There's a huh. bunch of different types of things. Um, but that lack of investment comes a lot in when you're talking about OPEC Plus's partners, because when they kind of dealt with the onslaught of the pandemic, they ramped down their production. Remember, we right. saw them cut down supply it hit their economies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only two countries that are able to ramp up as quickly as they ramp down are Saudi Arabia and the UAE. The rest of them, including Russia, which is the second largest producer in the OPEC plus cartel, doesn't have that investment to ramp back up. So even if you say, hey, Russia, we'll buy everything you've got, they're going to say, we don't have everything you want.
1: Isn't that the case as well for our own shale producers in Texas? You know, it was drill, baby, drill until the demand fell off and they've been burned before. They've been slow to come back in this story of, of rising demand now.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think. When we're talking about shale producers, we also have to keep in mind that these shale producers, this industry is not state driven the way Saudi Aramco is, the way Russia's uh, economy when it comes to commodity exporting is. Um, So you
1: can't force them back to work.
0: Right. You can't say, uh, Joe Biden can't say, you know, gas prices are rising, my approval ratings are falling, drill baby drill. You can't say that. (laughs) Um, And and I'm sure he wish he could because that's, of course, uh, high up on his agenda. But for shale companies in particular, they're also having that kind of ramp up issue because. In the last couple of years specifically in 2014 through 2016 they drilled so much that their investment their wells essentially aged out and they Mm -hmm. didn't actually kind of reinforce that invest that uh investment that infrastructure and that means that they also probably can't ramp up and most importantly they don't want to they're trying to be more responsible they're trying to return cash to their shareholders you can't do that if oil prices drop
1: what does this mean for policymakers? then, if you know you're pointing out the potential for $100 a barrel, we saw $95 WTI today for the first time since 2014. You're pointing out in, in your column today, $100 a barrel by the end of this month would lift inflation by about a half percentage point. Now you and I are talking about how this might slow the economy. What does it mean for a federal reserve that's about to start tightening?
0: Yeah, well, this is the biggest issue, right? And by the way, that stat that you mentioned, the by, uh, heightening, or heightening inflation by half a percent, yeah. that's coming from Bloomberg Economics' shock index model. So it's really huh. important to give them credit where credit's due. But what's important for the Fed here is that they're already kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? They're kind of trying to not tank the economy, but also get a handle on inflation. The way you do that is you don't control prices of things like oil. You kind of tamp down the underlying demand, and that's what they're trying to do by hiking rates. The problem, though, is gasoline prices, for example, in the winter, Mm -hmm. I should add, it's not even road trip season, are already uh, rising and rising and rising, and and that's going to eat into people's consumers, which brings us full circle to where we started. If you have less money in your pocket, you're going to be spending less, the economy's going to be churning less, um, and the cycle begins. So
1: does this uh, potentially alter the Fed's plans as we get deeper into the year?
0: In theory, I think they're still waiting because right now the inflationary pressures are so strong that right now, in their eyes, it outweighs any damage that they can do. But this is the risk, right? This is what people are saying, that the Fed might overdo it. There might be a policy mistake in there. And that's really where you see uh, the bond market start to price in a potential recession in the next couple of years.
1: What does this mean then for lawmakers as well? How do you make spending plans when you don't know where the economy or inflation are going?
0: Yeah, it gets really tricky, and I wish I had an answer for you because <laughs> you can't. I just—you really can't—because it's it's really challenging to basically predict when peak inflation is. There are a lot of people who said the CPI report that we just got was peak inflation, mm-hmm. but people have also said that in the past. They said inflation would be transitory, right? So yeah. that lack of prediction is really the sole cause of all this uncertainty <laughs> that Incredible. you're seeing, kind of roil the markets.
1: Lastly, you're our market Maven. You write that stocks have become more sensitive to the price of oil. Why is that?
0: Because it's rising so much, and because you're seeing it, I mean, oil and stocks are supposed to move together. They're both supposed to be these beacons of economic growth and healthy demand. So they are supposed to move together. But when you see oil prices this powerful, it, it eats into a lot of the kind of corporate America's bottom line, into that consumer spending we were just talking about. And it means, at the end of the day, corporate America could be making less and less. And that's something you're seeing in earnings right now. The idea that, for a lot of companies, transportation costs are eating into how much they're making, how much they're able to pay their employees. Yep. And that's something that a lot of investors don't see abating anytime soon.
1: Bloomberg Markets correspondent Kriti Gupta, a great pleasure to have you on Bloomberg Sound On. Thanks for checking in today. And coming up, we reassemble the panel to extend the conversation. Rick and Jeannie will be back in a couple on this eve of confirmation votes for President Biden's picks for the Federal Reserve. Looks like a package of five. We're going to vote on them all in committee tomorrow, the Banking Committee. And we'll talk about all of this ahead with our signature panel. Thanks for being with us on the Fastest Hour in Politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
2: On Bloomberg
1: Radio. On Donald Trump's last day in office, January 20th, two years ago, the average price for a gallon of unleaded gas, do you want to take a guess? It was $2.39 a gallon. That's the That was the national average according to AAA. Today, $3.48 a gallon, so up over a dollar. And as we just discussed with Kriti Gupta, that money's got to come from somewhere, so means lower consumer spending. It could mean an eventual drag on the overall economy. And historically, that would mean a drag on the president's approval ratings. So you wonder how long this can go on for. Let's reassemble the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are here. Rick, this really complicates things for the Federal Reserve. I know policymakers look at so-called core inflation. They strip out energy. But you can't ignore the impact this is having on households when you're just about to start tightening.
6: Yeah, and you're you're starting to get this demand back to pre-pandemic levels and you can't satisfy it. And these rising costs are, you know, fueling this inflation trend. And, and, and you know, the Federal Reserve had their shot on goal early on this and, and missed it uh... by calling it all transient and that would go away so uh... they could really use some help on this but uh... at the end of the day a lot of the uh... a lot of the mechanisms they have are probably to be determined right they're gonna have to come in the future so uh... the consumers gonna have to go through some pain it looks like in order for them you know implement
1: their policies you wonder if this alters their plans at all genie i mean it's become you know it's become a drinking game It's gonna be six or seven hikes in the next year Uh, If we have persistently high energy prices, let's say something doesn't go very well in Ukraine uh, and we've got $100 a barrel, the way we just discussed with with Creedy. what, What does that mean for policymakers when they're trying to slow inflation, but the economy is slowing at the same time?
8: Yeah, I mean, as you and Criddy were discussing, I mean, it's stunning, nearing $100 a barrel now, and by some estimates could go up as high as 120 And, you know, to your point, this is something that people feel every time they go to fill up their car. It's 40 percent more to fill up your car than it was last year, let alone when Donald Trump left office. So, you know, it, it is a huge impact. And for policymakers and for the Biden administration in particular, this is a huge impact huge challenge. And what, depending on what happens in the Ukraine, should Russia go in, that could drive this up even further. And the Fed is going to have to act on that. And they could use some real direction in doing that. And I just go back to the president's comments in this interview he did over the weekend for the Super Bowl, Mm -hmm. in which he seemed to me at least frustrated by the question, which was a fair question about how do you define transitory, he should have an answer to what he is doing about inflation because he is doing things. The administration is. They're doing the best they can potentially. But his his response to that was a bit frustrating, I think, for many of us listening.
1: Well, we've certainly seen this uh, impact presidents before, and and it's very difficult to tell where we're going here. It's just the Fed, Rick, may not have a choice, I guess, is the problem that if inflation is running rampant, they, they're they going to have to hike interest rates even if the economy is slowing down. And then things are going to get really interesting. That brings us to uh, the vote tomorrow. Banking committee in the Senate. Uh, it looks like they're going for all five at once. It's going to be a, a, a block vote here with five nominees, of course, including the chair himself, Jay Powell, uh, in the banking committee. And then, of course, it would go to the floor. We heard today... Uh, As you as you might have heard earlier, Senator Mark Warner is uh, on the Banking Committee. He spoke to Bloomberg. He was on balance of power with David Weston, who asked about Republican opposition to some of these. And the idea here is why not break them up a little bit? If there's going to be a problem, why not break them up? Get the chair at least in place before the next Fed meeting. Here's Senator Mark Warner.
6: I think both Chairman Brown and the administration want to try to move these as closely as possible in a block because uh, so that our our Republican friends don't try to pick off one or the other. I think some of the charges against both um, Ms. Bloom Raskin and Dr. Cook are uh, way out of bounds and frankly, don't uh, don't hold a lot of water.
1: Jeannie, the Senate Banking Committee will vote on the the five nominees uh, around two in the afternoon tomorrow. Is that really a concern at this point? They have to all move together just to make sure that they get approval, or are we going to be in for uh, a complicated vote tomorrow? I,
8: I think we could be. You know, during the hearings, we heard at least one Republican or more say they supported Powell, Brainerd, Jefferson, and Cook. But mm-hmm. Cook has come is, is a little bit more iffy than the other three, but... Bloom Raskin has some challenges, even coming from Democrats now. We've heard from John Tester that he is a bit concerned about her work with this fintech company where she sat on the board, the Reserve Trust. Um, She said she didn't do anything improper, but he has expressed some concern about that. Republicans certainly have. So I think it's going to be, at the very least, a complicated vote tomorrow as they try to move this as a block. And to your question. Why not at least allow the chair, who by all accounts seems to have an easy path forward, yeah. get in position, particularly during this really difficult time that the Fed is facing, and then move the others? Um, but but Democrats want to try to get this through. And, of course, they then face a Senate where they are down one Democrat, which could make this all that much more complicated. Man, we're going to get to that
1: in just a second. Uh, Rick, you've seen, uh, you've seen these clearing committee at least are you surprised by the the level of Republican pushback the day before
6: you know uh not really this has become some, somewhat politicized uh especially with candidate Raskin you know and, and yeah. the comments related to climate these Republicans want to you know bash climate issues any chance they can but uh, I I doubt if it's going to be that big a, a test I mean like uh, uh, Jeannie was just talking about John Tesser. he announced that he was going to vote for them all so mm-hmm. the Democrats are going to vote in a block for all of them. They they have 50% of the votes in that committee. My my guess is uh, this is all going to be different. Tom- uh, afterwards, the floor will be an interesting debate as to whether anybody really wants to cause trouble with it. What's your expectation? But at this there? stage, well, nobody wants to get in the way of these guys doing their work on inflation. I mean, the last thing Republicans want, you know, is to be blamed for the fact that this team wasn't in place and they weren't able to tackle the inflation uh woes that we were just talking about um and and frankly they probably want them in place so they can blame them for you know not taking uh inflation serious enough so i i I think if i were the candidates i'd be the ones worried about it like maybe they shouldn't get nominated and confirmed because like this is going to be a hard job this year (laughs) and uh i guarantee you some of them are having like buyer's remorse for saying yes to this job
1: yeah uh we heard from the aforementioned Senator Uh, the democrat from new mexico has suffered a stroke young man uh, 49 years old suffered a stroke uh, about a week well i guess two weeks ago at this point he showed up today on a video tweeted a video to his supporters to let them know that he would be back remembering uh, that this impacts the vote you're in a 50 50 senate and and one member of the democratic party suffers a stroke you're recounting all of a sudden now we know that we have a supreme court nominee that's going to be in the offing that's going to be even more dicey than this conversation about the Federal Reserve nominees. Listen to Senator Lujan today on Twitter. I'll be back on the floor of the United States Senate in just a few short weeks to vote on important legislation and to consider a Supreme Court nominee. Now, rest assured, New Mexicans can know they will have a voice and a vote during this process. That has never changed. Jeannie, he went so far as to even specifically mention the Supreme Court nominee. I guess there's there's no confusion about what needs to be done here and who Democrats are waiting for.
8: That's right. And it's so good to hear from him. I mean, he suffered a stroke, that recovery and that can take long. He's a young man and it's really good to hear that he's saying he's going to be back in a couple weeks. Certainly Democrats welcome that, Um, you know, but but let's not forget, you know, he comes back and you also have to watch people like Joe Manchin. Um, Whether you're talking about these Fed nominees or you're talking about the Supreme Court, for Democrats, there is no room to maneuver, as they know from the Build Back Better debate. So if they lose one, to anything, it could create enormous challenges for them. So for both of these votes on the Fed and the Supreme Court, they've got to maintain all of their people or pick up some Republicans, and that's a big challenge for them.
1: Does the president hold, I mean, realizing that Senator Lujan's not on the Judiciary Committee, Rick, does the president hold his announcement until he has a better sense of when he's got a quorum?
6: Well, it sounds like that's what he's doing anyway. I mean, we heard that he was uh, talking about getting this out by the end of February. That's right. That just happens to be two weeks from now. That just mm-hmm. happens to be when, you know, the senator says he's going to be back in circulation. It certainly did sound good, you know, in the uh, in the video he released. So uh, my sense is that there's more orchestration going on here than, than meets the eye. I've certainly been through that with John McCain when yes, he had uh, his tumor removed and we were coming back for that uh, That vote on the health care bill, I I think Republicans were all anxious to have him there until they realized he was going to vote against him. So Uh, uh, I I, I think these things tend to be pretty well coordinated.
1: What was that like, uh, Rick? Were you hearing from uh, the leader's office on a regular basis? This is obviously something that had to be carefully coordinated so votes were not held in his absence.
6: Yeah, I mean it was a it was a tight uh, vote to begin with, and uh, sure we were hearing from everybody. One because they all just were concerned about Senator yeah. McCain and making sure he was doing well, and yeah. you know of course it's like, hey, how's he doing? By the way, when's he coming back? <laughs> and yeah, uh, and I think that uh, those are the kinds of things that are probably happening now, and uh, certainly Senator Lujan sounded like he was ready to come back pretty soon. So I, I would think two weeks from now we're going to see yeah. a very finely orchestrated rollout of a nominee.
1: And like will be Gini back. Said, we really do hope that he as well Jeannie and rick thank you as ever thanks to the general mark kimmet for being with us and jason mcmahon from morning consult with new numbers on the standoff with russia ukraine we'll have more on that tomorrow this is bloomberg